0: Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Imre Bard. I'm from the LSE's Methodology Department. And I'm very happy to welcome you all to one of the literary festival's closing events. This is the seventh annual LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival. And this year's theme was Foundations. I hope you had a chance to attend many exciting events. Continuing the exploration of this theme, tonight we're going to have a discussion about visions of future humans. Um, Human Enhancement and Science Fiction. Um, And this event is organized by the NERI Project, which is a three-year endeavor supported by the European Commission. And the aim of the NERI Project is to facilitate societal dialogue and public discussion about the theme of human enhancement. Um, I'm sure this will be a great opportunity to contribute to this ongoing deliberation. And if you'd like to learn more about the NERI Project, please visit our website at www.nary.eu. Now, if you look at the news on any given day, you might read about things like landing a robotic rover on a comet, or planning a manned mission to Mars, or deliberating whether we should contact extraterrestrial intelligences. And that is only about issues related to space. Scientists are also making extraordinary advances into things like uh, bionic prosthetics, uh, direct brain-to-brain communication over the Internet. And you can also read about very interesting news items relating to artificial intelligence and the rise of robotics. Now today, uh, in this session, we are going to explore how science fiction has prefigured or discussed ideas relating to the enhancement of human capacities and whether we can turn to this literary and cinematic genre to navigate our thinking about questions that these technological advances might raise. And to help us navigate our thinking around these issues, we have a highly distinguished and exciting panel tonight. Um, We have Dr. Caroline Edwards, who is a lecturer in modern and contemporary literature at Birkbeck University of London. And she is director of the MA in Contemporary Literature and Culture. We have Adam Roberts, who is a professor of 19th century literature at Royal Holloway University of London, and also the author of 12 science fiction novels. Fifteen. Fifteen, I'm sorry. I wrote three this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> in the green room, I didn't take your Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just on the way on the
1: train. That sounds like I'm bragging. <laughs> Eleven of a little crap, but three of them are very good. So <laughs> what about the fifteen? You have 15? to read them all to find out which are the good ones, though. That's the, you have that's to combine
0: the them things, and, yeah. and merge them. And last but not least, Dr. Anders Sandberg, who is a computational neuroscientist and philosopher, and he's James Martin Research Fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. Now, uh, the running order of the event will be the following. We will first hear brief presentations from each of the speakers, which will be followed by a short discussion among the panel, and then we'll open up the floor to questions from you. Mm. Now the audience, sorry, the event is being recorded, and we hope that the recording will be made available online soon. I would like to remind you to please turn your mobile phones to silent. Uh, We don't encourage you to switch them off, because we're happy if you're tweeting about the event using the hashtag LSE LitFest. And then following the event, there will be a reception, and you'll also have an opportunity to purchase some of the 15 science fiction (laughs) books. (laughs) And also to get signed copies. Uh, I think that's about all I have to say. So without further ado, the floor is yours, Anders.
2: Thank you. And uh, of course, I'm uh, hoping to outsource uh, the, the timing to you so you tell me when to shut up. Uh, I it's will. ten minutes past seven, so you've had your time. Ah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so this is actually an interesting question. How do we remember? How do we measure time and so on? These mental faculties, we normally tend to think about our minds as having parts. And we complain about some of the parts. Rock Foucault uh, he famously said that everybody complains about their memory, but none, none complain about their judgment. And I think there is something interesting about it because we're fairly okay with saying, oh, I have a bad memory, because we can use that as an excuse. Uh, it's kind of more embarrassing to say, yeah, I'm stupid. <laughs> but quite a lot of us do every day think that thought. It's not just that we get annoyed when we forget things. Sometimes that can be very painful and problematic. And we quite often do stupid things. So people have for a long time been trying to fix this problem. And some of the fixes are, of course, relatively straightforward. Get enough sleep. Get exercise. Don't drink water with a lot of lead in it. <laughs> uh, and uh, that works. Uh, we're actually, probably, thanks to these things, way smarter than many people in the past. But we probably want more. And the people have traditionally been inventing ways. So... so at least when it comes to memory, we have methods that can amplify any, anybody in this audience their memory with at least a thousandfold in narrow domains. And that, these, these are the memory arts. They're known since the ancient Greeks, where you have methods of memorizing entire plays, entire books. And the people refined them, you know, the Romans used them for rhetoric. It was an integral part of Roman rhetoric, how to memorize your speech, you could give it really well. And during the Renaissance, people developed these ideas even further into the idea of creating memory palaces, virtual environments you carried around in your head to organize your knowledge. And one interesting side effect of this was, of course, we developed theories about organization of knowledge that through various weird pathways actually led to the World Wide Web. But let's discuss that another time. The interesting thing about these memory objects is that anybody in this room can learn them and it would allow you to me- memorize a deck of cards for example or a, a hundred digit numbers. There is no problem if you know the trick how to do it. Uh, also, you can do it with a completely normal brain. We know that because some of my friends in Germany have actually been doing brain scans of memory athletes who compete in the sport of memorizing a lot of information and they got totally normal brains. It's just that we use the right method to organize the information. However, most of us, wouldn't want to learn this method because it takes training, it takes effort. It's just like the exercise part. My office is on, literally on top of a gym in Oxford and I never set my foot inside. <laughs> Although I have really good evidence that my brain would work better if I actually worked out. So we wanted to improve our mental faculties in various ways and uh, of course the easier and cheaper the better. Uh, so people have been wondering about could we make a pill to make us uh, smarter. And in 1917, Lashley, the neuroscientist, he discovered that if you gave a low dose to strychnine to rats, their memory improved. Of course, if you give a higher dose, they die. It's pretty toxic. But it's a stimulant, and the right kind of stimulants actually do improve learning. And since then, pharmacologists have developed a really long list of things that do improve memory. We know fairly well the neurochemistry of memory and the substances that allow you to learn more. And, of course, we have stimulants that make you more alert, and there are drugs that focus your attention. And, of course, as some people have realized that the right amount of alcohol at the right time might improve creativity. Mm -hmm. Quite often just by disinhibition. Not necessarily because you become creative directly because of alcohol. The problem with most of these drugs is that they affect a particular neural subsystem, often in a really complicated way, and it might be very individual, and the real problem is, of course, figuring out the task I want to do right now. What would enhance it? The mm, Writing is speech, I probably should take a bit of modafinil and maybe a glass of wine. <laughs> now, keeping track of that, that probably requires you to pay attention to a lot of cognitive neuroscience, which might be an annoying side of the problem. But people are getting more and more interesting tools here for improving brain. Another method is, of course, uh, to uh, stimulate the brain quite directly. You can actually excite or de-excite part of the cortex either by oscillating electromagnetic fields or direct current stimulation, as some of the people in the audience are using. Uh, that's the uh, RMS, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but here is a good example Best of... Best
1: heckle other. ever. <laughs>
2: that's yeah. That's <laughs> Uh, but the interesting thing is, uh, if you have a function on the surface of the brain, we can uh, uh, carefully excite it or de-excite it. And if you know what you're doing and put the electrodes in the right spot, this has an enhancing effect. And it's been used both for memory enhancement or, uh, as well as making people better at finding uh, typographical errors in text. In that case, you want to turn off your higher frontal lobe functions and not care about the meaning of the text, just checking word by word. So again, there's a fine-tuning of our brain to the task. But what people have been dreaming about is of course making us smarter. Because all these small faculties feed into general intelligence, the thing we normally talk about when somebody is smart. And ideally, they should be acting together as some kind of symphony where the individual strands of memory and attention and motivation work well together. But just like composing a symphony is pretty hard, we have found that it's pretty hard to do that kind of enhancement. That doesn't stop people from working uh, on the question. So we know pretty well how to make a super rat. We know how to modify certain genes to give it better memory uh, and make it live longer and uh, run marathons uh, better and so on. So if we wanted to make the Uber rat, I think we have a good shot at it. This might be less applicable to humans, partially because most parents are rather sceptical of doing genetic engineering of the kids. Not not just because they might be against genetic engineering, but also because they would say, hmm, are the benefits worth it? Uh, After all, it's going to be expensive and some risk that something goes wrong. And uh, you generally don't want to do too much if the only result is that your little kid is going to have 5% better memory, which might be good but it doesn't really matter very much in the big picture. But generally, cognitive ability is becoming more and more important to us, and we uh, as a species have uh, become rather obsessed with it. I think rightly so, because in a post-industrial world, uh, what really matters is not so much physical strength as the ability to get human capital, skills how to make use of schools to actually learn really well. And of course, a school itself is actually a cognitive enhancement tool. You get about 2.7 IQ points per year at first. Eventually, it levels off. Unfortunately, we would be way smarter at university if it didn't, but um, it levels off. When you get trained, not just by hearing information, but also by interacting by other people. Uh, But the problem is, it's a slow process, it's painful, it takes a lot of money. If one could speed that up, a lot of things would be gained. Because a lot of our society is also hinges on the understanding these complexities we're surrounded by. If you want to, let's say, secure your computer, you need to take in an enormous amount of information to figure out what you ought to be doing. Most of us want to, want to do that efficiently. Of course, one clever way of cheating is to outsource it. Maybe I should just ask a friend who knows way more about computer security than me. So many really powerful enhancements that actually help our current civilization run as well as it does are not based on improving individual brains, but setting up networks of brains or machines that work well together. Um, After all, the smartphone is probably the most powerful cognitive enhancer we have right now. Uh, And the interesting part is it's getting integrated to some extent in our thinking. When I was in China a few years ago, I suddenly discovered that uh, Wikipedia was censored. I couldn't get access. And from that I noticed that, oh, I'm accessing Wikipedia without thinking, without being aware that I'm doing a lot of mouse clicking and requesting information and reading it. I was not aware that part of my mind was grabbing information. I had integrated to some degree Wikipedia in my thinking. Thanks to the Chinese government I became aware of it, so thank you China. The interesting part here is this is probably going on quite a lot with a lot of our other tools. We know, for example, that if you hold a rod, your personal space expands. If I had a long rod so I could poke the people on the first row, they would be within my personal space. You can actually see this in brain scans. When people are playing around in virtual reality or being subjected to weird rubber hand illusions and other things, our body images change quite a lot. Using tools also change our representations. So we are naturally tend to integrate stuff around us. Most of us blush a bit if somebody were to start stroking our clothes. So that's kind of a little bit too personal. We have integrated our clothing as a form of physical enhancement. So it's no wonder that we can use <coughs> extensions. And looking towards the future, it seems like the very strong economic forces that are going to drive much more cognitive enhancement. Uh, some of it in the form of direct effects on the brain. A lot of it in the slightly more separated things like smartphones and integration. But also that we're getting enabling technologies that allow us to interface brains. So um, over in Oxford we have a lot of people working on optogenetics, uh, making nerve cells light sensitive. So you can stimulate them, not by putting an electrode into the brain, which uh, of course works, but takes surgery and is a fair bit risky, and nobody in the right mind would want that unless you're a really uh, techno fetishist. Uh, but um, optogenetics promise a kind of kinder, gentler way of interfacing with nerve cells. It's mostly done in lab animals, of course, I have a friend uh, whose job it is to send mind control lasers into the heads of fruit flies to control the sex life. And uh, as we agreed, yeah, this is evidence that we're living in a pulp science fiction novel. Uh, But uh, there is work on actually using this to help blind people see. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more tools as nanotechnology and biotechnology develop that actually allow us to interface fairly directly with our brains. And while a lot of that is still going to be fairly expensive and going through the normal medical channels, we're also seeing more and more neurohackers that kind of take their brains in their own hands and actually start modifying them to try to see what we can do and can achieve. Uh, So if I'm going to make a prediction, it is that by the end of this century, I think we're going to be, if not wiser, I think we're at least going to be much smarter or at least more capable in a lot of our mental faculties. And maybe we haven't put it all inside implants and electrodes in our brain. Maybe we carry actually about most of our brains in our pockets as some kind of uh, post smartphone. Uh, but I think we're going to be a rather interesting species by the end of the century. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Anders. Next up is Caroline. At first, I believe your slides are loaded onto the.
3: Oh, do you want me to go over there? Uh,
0: do we have a clicker?
3: Yeah. Thank you. Oh. If you let me stand at the lectern, you'll never get rid of me. <laughs> Is it possible to down the lights ever so slightly because there's lots of pictures? Oh uh, yes. OK. So um, I wanted to discuss the relationship between humans and robots, um, what critics often call the human robot boundary. And I wanted to kind of very quickly give you a whistle-stop tour of some of the touchstones of um, 20th uh, and late 19th century science fiction texts to try and think about how science fiction has sort of anticipated and been engaging with some of these questions. So I'm mainly focusing on um, the issue of an idea of the individual subject, some kind of liberal humanist conception of subjectivity which has traditionally been premised upon a kind of indissoluble kind of boundary. And how science fiction texts for many years have actually been challenging that kind of subjectivity and fragmenting it, severalising it, pluralising it with various different uh, images of future humans. Um, Okay, so the first, uh, if this will work, Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, one of my kind of guiding questions really is what is it that science fiction literature can help us to think about? How does fiction allow certain kinds of value judgments concerning science, ethics, morality, ideological discourses pertaining to uh, scientific experimentation to be used? Um, How is character used? How might we be given uh, access to um, a robot or an android character if we have some kind of privileged insight into their mental processes? Or how might they be dramatised perhaps on the stage? Um, The thing that kind of fascinates me in terms of cybernetics, I I bring this up because I'm going to come back a little bit hopefully if i time this right to um, ideas of kind of network subjectivities and computerised humans and identity is that actually cybernetics, uh, which, is, which is quite an archaic term really, it is the term that comes to inform cyborgs, is um, really a term that tries to describe um, systems, so nervous systems, um, also kind of machinic systems, but originally it was actually um, used to describe different kinds of kind of government and social organisations, so actually it's, it's not perhaps quite as science fictional as, as we might think. Uh, I've cited here the text Ian Forster's The Machine Stops from 1909. This is one of the examples of the earliest literary dystopias, a short novella. Um, And for those of you who know, it it contains characters who live in what we would now probably recognise as a a kind of a world that has the internet, so people who live in small little hubs and don't like face-to-face contact. Um, (laughs) It sounds wonderful, and some of the images are great, that uh, it was made into a film at one point, but um, for E.M. Forster, he was absolutely kind of terrified of this kind of um, distant future where people would lose that sort of material contact with one another, and he felt that a certain kind of privileged understanding of liberal culture and, and aesthetic society and creativity would be lost by that close engagement with machinery. Another favourite, um, H.G. Wells, obviously one of the kind of um, forefathers of science fiction, uh, developing the scientific romance from the late sort of 1890s onwards and then into the uh, early Edwardian period. I've chosen The War of the Worlds um, because the thing that I find really interesting is the way in which The War on the Worlds um, represents the alien characters. So you have, uh, as you can see from this image here, uh, some very famous images, no doubt you recognise them. The alien technology contains the aliens, the Martians, who have come over from Mars with their superior uh, technological capabilities. And they are in these kind of tripod, uh, very tall, stilted um, pieces of machinery, which they use as a kind of appendage. So it it requires their sort of um, biological occupation within the technology in order for it to function. Uh, to give you um, sort of some descriptions of it, it's described. Uh, the technology is described as a monstrous tripod. It is higher than many houses. It's a walking engine of glittering metal, a great body of machinery with a ringing metallic pace and long, flexible, glittering tentacles. The use of tentacles, that kind of imaginary of the weird, um, splices together some sort of horror imaginary with science fiction. But it's very metallic. Uh, it's very threatening. It romps across the home counties, destroying various parts of. Um, of Surrey and, and the Downs and elsewhere and really um, HG Wells fits into this early discourse um, in the sort of early 20th century that E.M. Forster was also a part of and incidentally E.M. Forster thought HG Wells' writing wasn't up to much, he didn't think it had much literary value and he was just a sort of working class um, guy who didn't really know his place and who was writing all these texts and things. And it fits into this idea of liberal versus um, mechanical culture. So mechanism, which is um, we are becoming uh, in the early 1910s and 20s increasingly integrated into factory production processes, uh, the mechanisation of the labour process, um, the mechanical age, which suggests um, to liberal critics a certain kind of degraded or low culture, uh, a certain sort of vulgarity and sensationalism that you might associate with some of the more melodramatic aspects of the scientific romance as HG Wells was developing the form um but also that that kind of class um, aspect to the um critique of this vulgarity and this low culture so you see there the workers on the top left working in the machinery we become more like machines we become massified we lose our individual subjectivity when we enter into a large almost kind of lumpen proletariat situation <laughs> Liberal culture, which Matthew Arnold described as sweetness and light. High culture, the best which has been thought and said in the world. Uh, And and liberal culture champions that individuality, the thing that is threatened by this kind of um, mechanism. Um, HG Wells's text also uh, takes the very popular late Victorian future war story, um, the, the narrative uh, of sort of often the Germans coming to invade Britain and then sort of turns it on its head by making it the aliens who are coming to invade Britain and so it's a really interesting critique of um, European colonisation, the way in which actually the English people then become the othered subjects and the victims of a superior technology. Okay, so moving on to one of my favourites then. This is another kind of historical text which is incredibly important for us. Karel Čapek, the Czech uh, dramatist, wrote a a play called Rossum's Universal Robots, which he wrote in 1920 and it was performed in uh, Prague in 1921 at the National Theatre. Uh, the reason why you'll often find this text alluded to in various scholarly um, accounts of the development of science fiction is because this is where the term robot actually comes from. So the term roboti, which uh, Chapek uh, coins, him and his brother had been <coughs> developing this term, uh, literally means labourer. So the robot here is the figure, the mechanical figure, who um, embodies the new kind of labourer, right? the perfect labourer, the labourer who can do more labour than the workers themselves. Uh, who works extremely hard, but the thing that I find really interesting when you look at the play and the characters in the play are taken on factory tour. most of this play is set in the factory itself, uh, and they 're actually shown where these robots are made, and the robots are made out of organic, machi- uh, organic materials, sorry. So we have a description uh, where one of the characters is is being um, told about the factory and they're going through these various kind of Victorian mills uh, and they get to the spinning mill and he sort of asks, well, what what happens here? And he's told the spinning mill is where miles and miles of digestive tract are made at once. Then there's the assembly plant where all of this is put together, you know, like automobiles. So that idea that we could take organic human material, body parts, and spin them like yarn or like thread or wool in this sort of factory um, environment and then make these android-type robot, robotic humans is really interesting. And in many ways, you can kind of historicise this play with two key reference points. The first of which is that idea of mass industrial production, the Fordist assembly line, where you would uh, mass produce you know, individual parts and the serialised process of production, uh, which is why I've given you Charlie Chaplin's um, Still from Modern Times. Though. It's a wonderful film, if you know it, where the character actually goes into the machinery and moves around the cogs and so on. And this is something, given the context of the Czech Republic at this time, uh, given its relationship with um, Soviet Russia and the recent Russian Revolution, Karol Chepek was, was quite concerned about what was happening in Russia. So that sort of industrialization is, is kind of um, important. But also, of course, it makes us think about the relationship between the workers and, and their machines, Uh, And it it also touches on a number of other uh, dramatisations of science fiction which is a relatively understudied area Uh, and it's a real shame because there are some fantastic costume opportunities um, as you can see from up here. Um, Things like science fiction musicals and avant-garde plays. Um, I recently went and saw some of uh, Malevich's um, Suprematist costumes at the Tate Modern, and I was really struck by some of the video footage of them. Absolutely fantastic. So as you can see from the bottom right here, those are the robots. They appear as humans. Um, They are sort of mechanical and... um, You know, they don't die and so on, but they are made up of body parts which will degenerate over time. So they have to kind of learn how to produce themselves more efficiently in the future. Then we come to a a third historical text that I thought I should um, mention to you because it has many um, important influences on on contemporary uh, robots and and, uh, bioengineered humans as well. And this is the idea in Metropolis, so Fritz Lang's very influential expressionist film from 1927, uh, done in this kind of German expressionist style with really striking kind of imagery. Um, And this is where we have the robot figure of Maria, who is um, constructed, as you can see there, as this great metallic kind of figure, really beautiful style and design. And then they put on a kind of human skin over her and she goes off and she becomes evil Maria. And she goes to the really louche part of town in the metropolis city and she dances very suggestively Uh, and she does these kind of exotic dances with lots of gentlemen fawning over her. And it's a really interesting um, kind of dramatisation of the way in which throughout various different science fiction texts across the 20th century technology has been specifically gendered and it's been gendered as female and it's associated with a kind of liberated or threatening or aggressive female sexuality um and so you have various kind of reactionary positions and the good maria is very virtuous and and sort of she has this motherly figure One quick point actually about the robot costume which I found really interesting is that it's based on a medieval coat of armour so the images of the future robots are actually drawing on medieval kind of iconography. Okay so I'm just going to talk you through in my last three minutes three different kinds of um, slightly more uh, contemporary texts then. Um, The first of which I'm referring to is computerised consciousness so I'm What I'm doing here is trying to kind of map out for you a spectrum from the robot on one side of the human-robot boundary and the human on the other. And uh, on the one hand, here, we have the kind of androids that become sentient. So um, we have figures like Hal from 2001: Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's film, Arthur C. Clarke's novel. It's interesting to note that you may recall that actually Hal was originally designed as a female robot. It was explicitly gendered in the script. Uh, She was called Athena. Uh, and she became renamed when they they did the filming. So the HAL figure then kind of replaces that robotic housewife of the 1950s, which was a popular figure of um, associating these future machines with gendered domestic labour, the the robot figure that's going to replace women doing this kind of housework. Uh, We have also here, uh, more recently, um, Her, the the film from, I think it was 2013, where the man has this kind of intimate relationship with his computer, uh, and, and that sort of Um, you know questions what kinds of boundaries we might have with our own machinery Uh, and then finally kind of Cylon figures perhaps Terminator um, as well Uh, a second kind of figure so this is moving along the human robot boundary a little towards the human and we would associate this then with cyberpunk you can see up there Molly which is William Gibson's uh, 1984 text Neuromancer Molly is, is one of these kind of enhanced human figures She's described as having um, the sweep of her flank is is described as being having the functional elegance of a warplanes fuselage. And she has these, uh, yeah, it's beautiful, right? Saucy, yeah. Very saucy, Saucy. very saucy. She has these kind of long nail enhancements as well, and she has various bits of kind of tech. And there begins uh, an incredibly popular uh, genre of cyberpunk fiction. Uh, I've also chosen the Cybermen from Doctor Who down here and uh, Darth Vader. Um, and China Miéville. for any Meeval fans out there, a more recent contemporary writer who has um, various different human and uh, robotised characters in his texts. And then just to finish up, I noticed that it's quite interesting that recently there's been a number of different films and TV shows that are dealing with questions of biotechnology and kind of enhanced uh, humans so we have here um, Limitless from uh, 2011, Neil Berger's film, where the Bradley Cooper character, as you can see on the left-hand side, uh, takes a kind of psychotropic drug. Uh, he's a writer who has writer's block, and that allows him to improve his memory and his learning abilities. Or we have also um, Lucy, uh, I think down at the bottom left there, featuring Scarlett Johansson, again another character who's given a synthetic drug which enhances mental and physical capabilities and eventually, as those of... Sorry, spoiler alert, she metamorphoses into a computerised kind of consciousness and she disappears into the ether um, in very spectacular kind of fashion. Uh, And then finally, one of my favourites here... um, Fringe at the top and Continuum underneath. Uh, Continuum is a Canadian science fiction drama which has been running, it's ongoing actually, and here it's, um, it's a slightly terminated time travel narrative, but the, the main character is a cop who wears this um, kind of engineered suit that is a, a, like the appendages you were talking about, it's a kind of engineered suit that allows her all these extra capabilities, increased memory, physical power, GPS, all kinds of fun things. And then Fringe up there, which is slightly more steampunk in its style, so this is J.J. J. Abrams' cult TV show, very critically acclaimed, and Olivia, the FBI agent here, has various different um, tests done on her as a child, she had drugs given to her to increase her um, telekinesis, telepathic abilities, various other kind of fringe science capabilities, so Bear in mind, of course, that many of these figures are women, so I thought that was really interesting to connect that lineage back with um, Robot Maria, with uh, Metropolis, and the way in which often these technologies and these kind of robotized, enhanced humans are explicitly gendered.
0: <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and finally turning to Professor Roberts. You didn't bring any slides. So. I have no slides. and um, your
1: head. I've been pondering this talk a, a long, long time and in no way sitting in the green room racking my brains as to what I'm going to say. I think I'm here as a, a writer of science fiction of 15, actually now 16, science fiction novels because I wrote one whilst I was listening to these two excellent <laughs> talks. And I think my, my brief really is to fill that in from a, a kind of creative point of view. So part of me just wants to stand up and list all my novels, the uh, recommended retail price, and <laughs> urge and exhort you to buy seven copies uh, in case you lose six. Think how sad you'd be if you bought six copies and lost all six of them. That extra seventh copy could make the difference. And if everyone in this room bought seven copies of all of my novels, I could realise my dream. <laughs> Which is? it's is to live in a solid gold house. It's not much <laughs> to ask. Uh, instead of doing that, instead of just giving you the hard sell, I thought what I might do is wait and see what my, my colleagues say and then respond a little bit from, a, from the point of view of the kind, my kind of creative practice. And I'm glad I decided to, to do that because these are two very interesting talks that touch on two fascinating areas to do with the cyborgization of uh, humanity and moving into the future. So I think what I'll do uh, briefly, because I know uh, we started a little bit late and I'm sure we're in, keen to get on to... A broader discussion is isolate just three of my novels which you then have to buy 21 copies of each of those in order just to make up the numbers uh talk a little bit I'm not I'm not expecting anyone here to have read it although I see someone in the front row has a copy of one of my novels and you are going straight to heaven You're <laughs> a special person. it's a wonderful thing to see um uh, and really I, th- I think there's just one point that I want to make which builds on what Cameron and I were saying about the the historical context of science fiction and the idea of the robot and the cyborg and the way that then comes down to us and that develops i think what anders is talking about with his very interesting fascinating vision for 100, 100 years hence or by the end of the century when we'll all be 2.5 percent smarter and better dressed and they may or may not have found a cure for male baldness we can only hope uh, mind you, I'll be long dead by then, so I wouldn't even want to worry about that. And this is, it, it seems to me a simple point, but a kind of important one, to do with the, the broader discourse, in a way the meta-discourse, of cyborgization. There's something that, uh, that's very appealing, especially to a geek sensibility, about the idea of the cyborg. There is, I think, something sexy about it, which very often, as Caroline has been saying, gets literalized into the discourse of science fiction as sexy. So, Molly in Neuromancer is above all else sexy. In fact, she works as a, as a prostitute using a cyborg implant to block out the unpleasant memories of having to do this in order to make money. It's a very uh, slightly like itchy, uncomfortable portrayal of a woman in many ways. That, is quite right, forms a whole subgenre of, of uh, cyborgisation. So, the, the, the large point I want to make is going to link to, I think, I'll, let me pick three of my novels. Uh, in 2010, I wrote a novel called New Model Army, uh, which is sort of about a cyber organization of uh, a group of people who band together as an army, as a, a bunch of irregulars, don't need a command structure, they don't need officers, they don't need the usual structures that inform military operations, because they're all linked to one another through a sort of super internet. So they can vote on tactical decisions in the middle of a battle. And the premise of the novel is... This wisdom of the crowd, enabled by the sorts of technologies we all, of course, take for granted with everyone having a phone, uh, means that they are a better army. They're leaner and they're cheaper, but they're also more effective because they're not stuck in this, this calcified, antiquated model of a hierarchy of power determining how an army should fight. That's the idea behind New Model Army. Then I wrote a novel called By Light Alone, which I wanted to call Beggar's Banquet. I still think that's a much better title than By Light Alone, But, if I can digress for literally 20 seconds, my editor at Galance said, there's an Ian Rankin collection of short stories called Beggar's Banquet. And Rankin's also published by Orion Books. We're not happy about having the two titles. I said, well, it's science fiction, he writes crime. So my editor said, I will have a word with him. Uh, So he rang him up and said, look, Ian, do you mind if my author uses this title? And Ian Rankin said... No, he can choose his own fucking title, which is nice of him in the end. So we ended up calling the book By Light Alone, which I think we can learn to love over time (laughs) if we say it over and over before we go to sleep. And the premise of By Light Alone is a future uh, in which, please don't titter as you look at my cranium, uh, photosynthetic hair is the common attribute of human beings, so we no longer need to eat. You grow your hair long... You sit in the sun for a couple of hours a day. Your hair photosynthesizes all the energy your body needs. You need to drink, of course, and take a few vitamin uh, supplements. But rich people can take pills, poor people can chew a bit of dirt, and you no longer need to eat. So it frees humanity from, this, from being shackled to uh, this particular requirement. And the third novel I talk about is a novel called Jack Glass, which is uh, a sort of whodunit uh, murder mystery set in the, in the future. Okay, so I'll, I'll set those three there, and then I'm going to make my one main point, which is to react to the things that my colleagues have been saying, and to think about cyborgization as a discourse of liberal individualism. And I'm fascinated that Caroline quoted Matthew Arnold uh, at the beginning of her talk. There's a sense in which when we connect, uh, we connect affectively, affectively to the idea of becoming cyborg, we wear things on our heads and we carry our phones with pride and we think machines will make me smarter and better and they I'll have a nanotechnology in my body that will cure my ills and I'll have augmentations to my brain that will make my memory better and make me smarter. And that, it seems to me, is the problem of the larger imaginary. And the problem is we're very good now in science fiction and I think in culture more broadly about thinking individually and we're very poor about imagining collectively. The problems we face are collective problems. So in fact, I, I can decant just a tiny drop of Marxism 101 from the little <laughs> vial that I keep at the back of my cyborg head uh, and give a, an alternative brief history of science fiction through the 20th century. Um, I think there's, there's a, a kind of palpable shift, almost a tidal shift. If you pick a, a story like Robert Heinlein's The Roads Must Roll from 1940, a very famous short story by Heinlein. Heinlein is the poster boy of the libertarian right. But The Roads Must Roll imagines a future in which mass transportation takes place by using portable roads, roads like huge conveyor belts. And everyone gets on these roads and they're transported from city to city and then they get off the roads. Now, the the reality, as we know is that there is no such collective mass transport system. What we have is we have millions and millions of individual little transport units that we all buy out of our own money that then fill the roads. And that, I think, has been the shift. In the early years of the century, there's a trust that there can be collective solutions to our problems. And H.G. Wells absolutely believed that. His stories are all about how a world government will pool our resources. It's a kind of Marxist view, if you like, although Wells wouldn't thank me for saying so. I think a particular turning point as far as the cyborg is concerned occurred in 1976 with a novel by Frederick Pohl, a very uh, grand master of hard science fiction from America, called Man Plus. And the premise of Man Plus is we must colonise Mars. But Mars is inhospitable to humans. So our two choices are we can terraform Mars, or areaform Mars, or we can alter ourselves. And that's what Man Plus does the protagonist of Man Plus, changes himself, turns himself into a cyborg, the sort of being who can prosper on Mars. And that, I think, then feeds into the way the cyborg figures in 80s and 90s and noughties culture. The cyborg becomes the epitome of a kind of individualism, a heroic individualism, almost. You become a Terminator. You become Molly, uh, super competent and, and able to look after yourself, but without any sense that you belong to a larger collective. You become Tony Stark who is a multi-billionaire individual who can augment his physical weaknesses with machinery in order to fight crime and and get the girl and all the things that he can do. And that that sense that it becomes a discourse of sex, of of sort of softcore geek pornography, I think, feeds into that. That's also an individualistic dream that's being peddled. So, to go back to the the novels that I mentioned before, that I urged and exhorted you to buy, what I was trying to do in all three of those novels was imagine a collective organisation, in one way or another. That what happens with the hare is that instead of liberating humanity, it turns out that when poor people, you don't even need to pay the minimum wage because they don't even need to eat. So they become that much poorer and immiserated. And the, the divide gets that much. It's a bleak novel, actually, now I come to think of it. You probably want to give that one a miss. Uh, the, The final point I suppose I'd make to to wrap up is the point that I make in in Jack Glass, which connects with this idea. You could say, for the sake of argument, that we've tried, we've essayed a collective cyborgisation of human society. We called it the Industrial Revolution. Society boosted its abilities. And it boosted its abilities in ways that were both very effective in terms of raising standards of living and generating wealth, but also very poisonous for the planet, very destructive for the planet. And those are still, in slightly more modified and advanced forms, those are still the cyborg technology society as a whole is using in order to maintain the standard of living for as many people as possible. And it is still poisoning and polluting the planet because we don't seem to have a collective imaginary that can think of another way of enhancing bare humanity. So this is the last point I'd make, I suppose, which is the point that comes out of Jack Glass. Speaking very broadly, there are three items in play. And those three items are uh, raw materials, energy, and labour. You need your raw materials and, uh, you know, to, to build with and to make things and, and to... Generate the wealth that we have, and you need your energy in order to power that, and you need your labour to, to, to control the manufacturing process. Now, of those three things, two are becoming scarcer and therefore more expensive, and those are raw materials and energy. And one is becoming more populous and less scarce and therefore cheaper, and that's us, because we are the labour part of that component. And I can't see. Unless we find some new resources of raw materials, unless we go off planet, or unless we come across some fantastic new energy supplies that we somehow pull out of the top of our uh, collective hats, I cannot see how this can ever lead to good for the majority of people. That what we contribute to that trifecta, our labour, is going to become cheaper and less valuable as time goes on as the other two things become scarcer and more expensive. And that has a terrible consequence. That's the future that I portray in Jack Glass, which is also quite a glum novel, now I come to <laughs> think of it. In fact, all three of the novels I've mentioned are very gloomy and depressing, and I would advise you not, actually, to buy any of them. I'll tell you what's good. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. That's funny, that enjoyable, makes you feel good about the world. And on that bombshell, I will sit back for a moment. Let <laughs> it.
0: Right, before we open up the floor to questions... um would any of you like to respond to any of the points made by the other speakers? So, so the I,
2: I got really inspired by both of this because it, it brought me <laughs> back to some of uh, my favorite early science fiction. So th- there is a very interesting st- strand of intellectual history uh, the, the, in the 1920s in Britain. Uh, so uh, J.B.S. Haldane, the biologist, uh, gave a very important lecture over uh, at the Heretic Society in Cambridge. Uh, called Daedalus, which was essentially outlining what he thought about the future of technology and its relationship to mankind. And he made the famous prediction that, yeah, this century looks like it's going to be the center of physics. The physicists are kind of discovering things that's changing the world. Next century is going to be the center of biology. And in this uh, lecture and later essay, he's outlining essentially a a world where we have biotechnology, how that's going to affect uh, the environment, and also that we're going to apply it to ourselves in various ways. It's a very creative and interesting essay. The most interesting part, though, was that it influenced other people responding. Uh, so when, uh, some people uh, disagreed. So, uh, uh, what, uh, the, so others felt that this was a really interesting idea. There was an Irish crystallographer, uh, Bernal who wrote a book called The World, the Flesh, the Devil. And he was a very clear communist. And he essentially outlined here the control over the material world, the control of the flesh, and the moral, moral development. And then the final section is essentially talking about cyborgs, space colonization, and uploading human minds, based on uh, the, uh, Haldane's early thing. And then that got used by uh, Stapledon, for inspiration for his seminal novels, um, The Last and First Men and Star-Maker, which are, in my opinion, among the most boring science fiction novels oh, you can ever read, but, oh, but, shame. They're ama- yeah, yeah, but they're boring to read, but they're amazingly good. <laughs> uh, it's a bit like reading a really, really good uh, historical uh, lecture. Uh, it's just that as a novel, well, the protagonist doesn't actually do anything, he's just observing, <laughs> which is fine, because the ideas <laughs> later... Then, of course, as uh, Clark pointed out, whenever I'm running out of ideas, just steal something from Stapleton. And that's essentially what people have been doing ever since, to a large degree. You can kind of find not just that science-fiction authors have been stealing ideas from this little stream of thought, but also the, when uh, the people in the transhumanist movement. Uh, and it's an interesting thing, because... Stapledon's visions about these advanced alien and human civilization is explicitly socialist too. Thanks to the sub become unified global and planetary minds and later galactic minds and then universal mm. minds. So I would disagree that the cyborg always, and even in contemporary literature, is individualistic and atomistic. I think it's true that a lot of it is, especially in the cyberpunk ethos, it typically tends to become very, very atomistic. But you find the interesting takes on it, like in Henry Ryan's recent trilogy, starting with uh, the, uh, Quantum Thief, where you find several different approaches on how to use radical cyborgization and enhancement, some of which are really, really taking the labor of the part to its most logical and horrifying extreme, and others which are building amazing societies that are only possible if you have literally quantum cyborgs. It's not possible without that. Um, so, I think uh, there is an interesting discourse going on about enhancement of cyborgism. Mm. Whether the aim is autarky, that I can survive totally without any civilization. Whether it is to tie me into a civilization, whether for my good or the good of a civilization. So, I think it's still rather open what the cyborg is politically. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I, I, I would, I think, tend to disagree, but you know courteously and without <laughs> hitting <laughs> you yeah, or stuck like in that. The middle. <laughs> <laughs> stop. Fist I think the. Um, Stapleton and Wells corresponded and they, were, they had very interesting uh, exchanges of views. They were part of a broader culture that was often kind of left-leaning but that assumed that the future was going to be collectivised. I think, very broadly speaking, people no longer believe that. Culture doesn't believe that anymore. And the culture of science fiction has become radically individualised in a way that the figure of the cyborg only enhances. Now, I know Hanu. He's a, he's a great writer. Uh, he's very handsome. He, he's too handsome, frankly. He looks like the guy from Aha, and I don't think any science fiction writer has any business being as good looking as that. And he is a great writer. He's a fascinating writer. I don't think he is. Uh, I don't think what he's doing is at the centre of, of where science fiction is now. Partly because it's very challenging and it's you know, it's very stimulating. And it's very good, but it, it asks a lot of its readers. I think where we are now is on this this dream of this. Radical individuality, which becomes, I think, I think Caroline's right, becomes kind of sexualized. Even when you get a vision of uh, the Borg from Star Trek as this kind of horror show version of what the cyborg mind could be, actually, what Star Trek does with the Borg is it picks individual Borg units out and then individualizes them, gives them names, and dresses them up in sexy costumes, and then they become characters in the larger liberal drama.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm supposed to posit,
1: am I allowed to make a point? Yes, yeah, no, so I, mean, I was wondering that
3: you disagreed with both. Um, <laughs> well... I mean I'm very interested in utopian literature and, um, and contemporary literature and it strikes me that the more I work on the 21st century the more I have to keep returning to the 1890s and fantasy in the 1910s and the sort of this we, we are still trying to engage with this nexus of enlightenment rationality some kind of linear notion of progress in the future and scientific improvement uh, and human subjectivity in this sort of liberal kind of model um, and the, yeah absolutely the, the kind of waning of collective hope and possibility across the 20th century as a result of collective disasters and, you know, two world wars, um, is definitely discernible in utopian literature. But I would argue that there's um, a kind of late flourishing of utopian ideas in the kind of 1990s, 2000s, and they're very much starting to work around ideas of sort of networked characters. So whilst on the one hand it is true to say that the utopian spaces of possibility have become much smaller and minimal and diffuse and provisional and you could argue postmodern if you wish... Uh, At the same time, if you've managed to read them in this kind of networked sort of strategy, then then there is still a possibility to read something utopian. Uh, It may reflect back on what it is the the Marxist literary critic might wish to do.
1: So I I would say, and I'm not trying to stop people contributing, but it seems to me that an acid test is when we look at our children, say, and the way they use social media, when I look at my 13-year-old daughter and her phone, which is never out of her hand, now, do I then say... This is good because she's using this to connect with people all around the area and indeed all around the world. This is part of a, a broader collectivisation of humanity. And I've used social media to become friends with people I've never met in real life, or literally all across the world. Or do we look at that teenage girl and say she's isolating herself from human interaction? She's just sitting at the dinner table. Yeah, she want to She's talk only to. isolating herself well, you. <laughs> <Well>, you know.
2: <laughs>
1: it is just me. Is. And I am quite obnoxious, so I don't blame her for that. But you can see it, you can read it either way, you really can. You can either say, these phones that we're all so obsessed with are ways in which we, and this is actually a feature not a bug. This is why we like it. This is because we're all a bit shy. This is a way of, Blinkering ourselves away from all the scary things in the world and dealing with a simplified, cartoonified version of reality.
0: Do you think it's an either or? Really? Do we look at it as this
5: isolation or? Well,
3: I mean, if you want to use the utopian dystopian paradigm, then the two come from the same impulse to critique Mm. our present through some kind of future extrapolation of what society might be like, so I'm not sure. It's on a knife edge, isn't it? I'm Mm. I'm not sure you can differentiate because so many utopias contain dystopian elements Mm -hmm. and what is my idea of utopia might not be
2: yours. (laughs) (laughs) And and of course most stories about utopia and dystopia try to purify them, to make them rather extreme in one direction or another. Uh, When you look at the real society, it's of course a completely hopeless mix of everything. Uh, Verna Vinge's Rainbow's End, for example, is quite confusing. Is this a dystopian or a utopian world? Yeah, it's both. Sure. You feel I find of offhand to mention that, yeah, we haven't lost that many cities this year, which is downright <laughs> chilling. <laughs> and at yeah. the same time, you have amazing technology where kids can do really good stuff. There is amazing creativity and then horrific, very abstract threats going on. And I think, in many ways, this is very realistic. I come from the Oxford Martin School, and James Martin, the futurist and philanthropist who created it, he was generally very bad when giving talks about getting the audience to understand what he meant. Because normally you're supposed to talk about the future in the utopian dystopian mode. But he was kind of talking about, yeah, climate change and nanotechnology that is going to really help us, and the suitcase nukes, and yeah, we might have to move to cities in Siberia, oh, yeah. and great cultural is <laughs> thanks to be singular, oh, wow. made the audience just, wait a minute, that's just too much. Mm -hmm. And that turned off a lot of the audience, which is unfortunately problematic, because reality, if you read any newspaper or news blog today, is this kind of totally bizarre and high-amplitude mix of uh, not just good and bad, but orange and yellow. Okay, let's hope we have not turned off our audience yet. (laughs) So I'd like to open up the floor. We
0: have about 30 minutes for questions. Please remember to keep your questions brief. And, yeah, there are roving mics, so... Yes, over there. in the
5: uh, Thank you. I was just interested in uh, Dr. Edwards' comments about networks and the, the the distinction between a collective and individualistic point of view, and whether this is kind of a sort of um, distinction between sort of anarchist leftism and and um, sort of more directive leftism. The uh, the, 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 the idea of the planner, the central planner, seems to have been completely, completely uh, gone out of our culture. But at the same time, you have this idea that we've got smart cities, which will um, aggregate information from all of people's smartphones and their information use, and sort of without any human involvement, will produce better, better collective results. Um, and I just wonder whether that is a, a, a left or right thing, or actually a distinction between different kinds of, of leftism
3: that's a really interesting way of putting it um, I think it probably depends uh, how you read it in a sense um, I, I, it's definitely true in the kind of humanities disciplines specifically literature sort of political theory and so on that, that I work in um, the ideas of these sort of um, rhizomatic slightly delusional connections between people have been used and applied to read various recent political situations. So things like you know Occupy Wall Street and all of the cycle of struggles that happened around 2011 or even the 1999 World Trade Organization protests in Seattle have been used as these kind of decisive symbolic moments in contemporary culture and the way in which we think politically today is is much more sort of localised uh, in the physical realm uh, with various different kind of protest movements and things like the Mexican Zapatistas um, championing their kind of regional uh, rights to land and so on but becomes networked through the internet and it brings us back to the question of how do we read um, you know those early sort of cyber utopian promises that people thought the internet might give them the internet as a technology (coughs) is a technology right? it's how we choose to use it and what kind of politics we build out of it and to come back to the literature side of things I think that's also true if you're looking at novels as I do and the way in which narrative structure is being made more networked and it's changing the the literary form of the novel in very interesting ways I think it it depends how you wish to read it perhaps so your politics Mm -hmm. influences the kinds of readings and connections you're going to make
1: that, I think that's very interesting, and it is a very interesting question. The distinction I'd make, I think, is I'm, I'm not trying to talk about collectivisation in the round as a political phenomenon, or even ideologically, really. I'm just interested in it as a, a facet of cy- cyborgisation. The cyborgization seems to me, the centre of gravity seems to me, just so defined by individual modes of, kind of liberal humanism. The, the collective space on the left is... There's a kind of inertia that I think goes along with the fact that the right have been in the ascendancy for a while now, that Occupy Wall Street is a kind of 1950s gathering where people take their physical bodies and go and sit outside banks. That the collective space that the internet means, the the collective possibilities of everyone being linked on the left, and maybe your experience is different to mine. Mine seems to be that the left is uh, shattering its energies over an endless stream of micro-policing of questions of tone and, and uh, the way that you're allowed to tweet, the kind of things you're allowed to put on Facebook, which is in part reflects an important matter, because there is this sense that when, you are, when you're dealing with cyborgs rather than face-to-face with human beings, you become a bit disinhibited. You become ruder than you might be. You're more prone to say rude and nasty and offensive and homophobic and racist things, and that's clearly something that needs to be addressed. The spaces need to be inclusive. but They don't seem to me to be inclusive. Perhaps I'm an old and a curmudgeonly fellow, perhaps you are aware of uh, left-wing collective spaces that aren't like that, but they don't seem very hospitable to me. On either side, on the one hand you have, you know, gamergate Nazis who leap on everything anyone says that's even slightly feminist. On the other hand you have lots of left-wing people for very genuine reasons who police the very tone of every single tweet.
2: Uh, another interesting angle is, of course, the libertarian collectivism. It might sound paradoxical, but actually when you think about uh, an, a true uh, believer in market, he, he or she will, of course, believe that yeah, the market price-setting mechanism is a form of collective uh, information mm. processing. Mm. And you can actually try to use this as various forms of decision-making. So there is a very interesting idea about uh, the information markets, where you're betting on the truth of statements or po- future states, as a way of getting better decision making. Uh, There is an interesting science fiction, it's interesting from an idea standpoint, if not a writing standpoint, Mark Stiegler's Earth Web, where in the future everybody will kind of participating in these betting markets on everything. Things get designed and decided based on essentially these markets of ideas, which means that when Earth is subjected to an extraterrestrial threat, there is a bunch of astronauts who have got the entire humanity behind them for solving the problem. So these astronauts are being themselves well, good astronauts, but we actually got uh, eight billion people's mind power acting through these kind of information markets to help them solve really tough problems. So here you have an interesting form of. Radical collective organization but it's written from
0: an explicitly libertarian standpoint. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, yes
2: the lady in the
3: fourth row. <coughs> yeah, just building again on the individual versus collective. Uh, do you think that it's just our personal kind of egocentric system that drives us into uh, a big interest uh, in science fiction? on focusing on individual enhancements, but if you in reality, if you look at the latest kind of trends, it's the collective um, intelligence, it's the network effect that shows a much more um, effective way of um, existence, uh, achieving results. So, I mean, is it just us pestering our ego, kind of? But in reality, uh, the true progress lies really with the collective uh, technology, rather. Can uh, I jump yeah, in? Yeah, sure. Um, Sort of going back to, I touch upon the science fiction drama, and I think what's really interesting about that is, uh, and it sort of draws on various Brechtian ideas of dramaturgy as well, is that you have a collective set of characters. Um, They're fairly boring. Ian Forster would complain that they're not round, they're not fully developed, they don't have kind of psychological plausibility and interiority and so on. And that aspect of um, dramatising kind of class struggle or collective relations, um, if, if we think that a lot of science fiction texts start out as novels, and many of which are then adapted into very successful films. The novel as a literary form privileges bourgeois subjectivity. The novel is a form which many people would argue... develops in the early 18th century um, and you can read the kind of Habermasian idea of a bourgeois sort of public sphere Uh, so it is privileging individual characters and it is privileging a certain kind of psychological realism at the expense of science fiction which is why science fiction has often been uh, you know, (laughs) thought of as a kind of derogatory case so I think um, from a literary perspective that's an important thing to bear in mind actually and if you wanted to challenge that privileging you might want to go and look at more sci-fi drama
1: yeah, except that, I mean, I think the, the the problem with the cyborg in the kind of cultural imaginary is that we are very suspicious of the machine half of the cyborgs because machines are better than us and stronger than us and they, they you know, do lots of tasks better than we can. So you end up with these kind of Terminator visions or the Matrix. A world that's run by machines would be tyrannous hell. There's no reason to think it would, but this is how it comes out in the, in the cultural imaginary because... We're not, you know, we love our machines and we find them strangely attractive, but we also are a bit scared of them.
3: But it- Sorry, Sorry, just one really quick point. Yeah. Uh, it depends who you read I suppose, because the fact that E.M. Forster's dystopia is sort of cited so many times because he's thought of as a good writer and, and somebody like John Campbell who imagines very positive future kind of robot societies, mm. I think there's a certain element of value judgments being placed over good literature and bad literature. It is, it that is true,
1: although again the John Campbell, Isaac Asimov idea of a robot is that the robot is moving in this Pinocchio path towards the perfect liberal individual subjectivity mm-hmm. and eventually they will become indistinguishable from us, like the Bicentennial man and it will simply be another human being there's no sense that there's anything distinctively machinic about the robot that is in itself attractive to to
2: us Uh, uh, there is also another practical and maybe even slightly boring reason and that is writing a novel about a really capable really intelligent protagonist that's going to be a pretty nice to read typically because the reader will tend to identify with the protagonist Writing a novel about a society where everybody is a genius—that's probably pretty tough. Uh, it's tough enough to write a really plausible, intelligent protagonist and uh, making, uh, describing a society where everybody is a creative genius. Uh, that is very much of a nightmare, I guess, for any writer. So we get these. Mis- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you tried? <laughs>
1: oh, you mean from a technical point of view?
2: Yes. Okay, let's take two or three
0: questions at the same time. Gentlemen in the second row.
5: Hi, do you think we're perhaps all already cyborgs, albeit with a um, clunky human computer <laughs> interface via our smartphones, with which we all regularly enhance our capacities and judgments? Okay,
0: there are some hands There the other gentleman in the second row. Um,
5: Professor Roberts was making an interesting point about the um, policing of the internet, And yes, of course, because of the new technology, we don't want people uh, making obscene comments and and, um, bullying people. At the same time, though, there's been an interesting debate from people like Stephen Fry on the fact that we're losing the ability to see the way things are meant because of the electronic means, (coughs) which are obviously not going to go away, and losing the humorous content. So people... Um, saying that they're going to put a bomb at an airport for example is, mm. being, is being taken seriously in a way that it would never have been done <coughs> in contact. and I just wondered whether the panel had any ideas about how we're going to deal with that in the future in the fact that as we become communicating more and more electronically how do we Um, compensate for the lack of of gestures and facial expression. And
1: context in a broader sense, isn't it? And I love Twitter. God knows I tweet a lot. But it's very hard to give any nuance or provide any context when you've Mm -hmm. only got 140 Mm -hmm. characters. And that's the the problem I have. And I I understand when you're saying, does it have to be either or? If I look at my 13-year-old across the dinner table, (laughs) she won't meet my eye because she's on the phone. If I thought she was... Tweeting and, and going on Facebook, she doesn't go on Facebook, my God, the very thought, but whatever she does, whatever the latest thing is, if she was saying, oh, you know how Zizek says it's easy to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism, she's not. She's going, oh, long, uh, but did oh, it come about? Oh, I love it. And all her friends are doing the same thing. There's a kind of commodified. Con- currency of exchange that is defined by its context by the form of Twitter itself, which doesn't allow you to do very much other than say, lol look at this cat
2: (laughs) Uh, uh, May I respond to the Uh, so it's known that, at least in the rats and probably in humans, that if a pregnant mother gets lecithin, the rat pup grows up to be better at solving mazes. Essentially, the hippocampus, the memory systems, get more well-developed. And it's pretty likely that our mothers, all of us in this room, got plenty of chocolate when pregnancy pregnant. We're already enhanced in that regard. <coughs> also, when I'm kind of looking over myself, okay, my eyesight is getting enhanced by these glasses, I, of course, got my extra brain, I, of course, got an egg- serve brain just in case, and of course this clothing is keeping me warm in a climate that might be too cold for me, and uh, of course I got a little Fitbit, which is a way for my higher order (laughs) desires to manipulate my lower order desires in order to achieve walking much more uh, than I would normally do, and so on. So it's pretty obvious that in many ways we're already cyborgs from a cybernetic standpoint in the terms of control theory. We might not have that many implants, although, of course, a lot of us have two fillings, which are already doing a fairly simple thing. Uh, probably would is estimate that at least one or two pacemakers in the room and so on. So I think it's pretty obvious that, yes, we're way more cyborgized uh, now than a century ago, and a medieval person would just say that, yeah, we're, we're pretty post-human. Uh, <laughs> of course, the real reason he or she would say that is probably because of our thinking. Because a lot of it is a mental software. And that's really weird compared to what existed 200 years ago. Can, okay. I, can I respond quickly really oh, really yes, to the point about
3: policing? Because, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this as well. I mean, in many ways... Um, we're moving through a very transitional period in terms of how we use the internet and how we use these social networking devices and they present sub- sub- substantial and significant challenges to um, you know, questions around the nation state and what kind of legal frameworks we can enact on something so transnational mm-hmm. and globalised as the internet. The point about um, context and not being able to see the gestures in which a, um, a medium of expression would be embedded i find really interesting i mean this is something that jack derrida writes about when he's looking at Rousseau and, and talking about communication and and calling, you know, the metaphysics of presence by which, in classical terms, people always privileged the individual speaker. They, they respected the legitimacy, the authority and the veracity of the speaker in person in the room in front of them. And when they were given a piece of writing or a doc- documentation, they didn't trust it because it had rhetorical devices and therefore it could be lying to you. And so I find it very interesting that we seem to be moving back towards a much more traditional way of understanding communication, whereby... We would like to privilege the presence of the speaker and we're not able to.
0: Let's take three questions
2: now at the same time. Hi, I think this is more towards Anders uh, because he's like the computational neuroscience person in the room and more towards uh, uh, enhancement.
5: I'll be really keen to know your views on computer neural interfacing because I had a, a conversation with a very, very smart friend of mine and the argument was in 300 years' time you know, we would still be where we are. So are we keen to know, in hundred, you know for the end of the, this century, what do you predict we would look like or in terms of
0: computer neural interfacing? Okay, one. There's a lady in the last room yeah. who's had to hand up for a while.
4: Well, I, I, did, I had the good fortune of interviewing Ray Bradbury um, who sort of p- postured that he had a very optimistic view uh, but I think that sort of was a, a disguise for a, very, for a very negative image of, of what's happening, of what's, what was happening and what is happening and what will happen. I think uh, the title of this talk is sort of loaded because you're saying human enhancement. It's really human debasement I mean if you if you, if, if you, uh, you know, read the, the literary sort of the literary tropes of uh, Aldous Huxley and uh, all the great sort of science fiction writers of the past 20th the 20th century you realize what we've come to now this gentleman can say his daughter looks perfectly fine etc but the fact is we have such a bombardment of controls in the society we live today we only get the we only get the news they want us to hear. We only get the, the we only get to perceive what they want us to perceive. Um, I don't really, I don't really, I really can't account for your uh, your optimism.
1: <laughs> My <laughs> optimism. Well, generally speaking, <laughs> I mean, generally you in speaking. particular, but the panel yeah. in
4: general. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we're we're living really in sort of an acceptable Hitler A- A- age. Where we okay. don't even realize that, uh, that actually we've incorporated and that we mimetically mirror a lot of the, uh, the stuff that was going on uh, in his, uh, w- within his own sort of context.
0: So the question is, how can we be so optimistic about something so dreadful? Okay. Maybe the gentleman who's just passing the mic. Yeah. Uh, so this is a question for uh, Mr. Anders. I think uh, your opening comments about uh, us... Uh, being shy to acknowledge that we are stupid is very interesting because uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is <coughs> the broader context of uh, what, how the process we learn today and how you think we're gonna learn in 100 years uh, do you think we're gonna lose uh, the ability completely of uh, learning through experience uh, or what's the role gonna be of learning through experience which we give a lot of importance uh, as of today. I mean, uh, do researchers think about that uh, when they're talking about speeding the process of learning?
2: Okay. Uh, So, so maybe I should start and I'm happy for your question because you managed to actually tie together all three questions in my opinion. Uh, So, uh, 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 so, Anish, question about uh, our neural interfaces. I think uh, I don't. Uh, uh, I cannot predict it very well, uh, and I think it would probably be turning embarrassing to try to predict neuroscience. But basically, we're going to get better at connecting the brains to computers. That, that's kind of obvious, and I think by the end of the century, we're going to be able to transmit quite a lot of information. Now, that leads, of course, to an interesting aspect of a learning scenario to me the best moment in the entire Matrix first Matrix movie uh, was uh, where somebody asked can you uh, fly that kind of helicopter not yet and she dials down the skill to fly the helicopter I think anybody would say yeah that would be so useful At the same time, it raises a really interesting question. What kind of skill and what kind of learning is that? If I could go into a school class and get the knowledge downloaded, would I actually have gotten an education? And I think most of us would also say, "Hmm, that's actually not an education, because education means making that skill a part of you integrative. It might be very useful in a crisis situation to suddenly be able to uh, fly a helicopter or know kung-, kung fu if I'm getting attacked by a fierce author or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but if I wanted to if write a novel, <laughs> if I wanted to write a novel, although I, uh, maybe I could download uh, the explicit skill, but I would still need to tie it together with my life experience, etc. And this gets into the middle question, Authenticity. Uh, I'm doing quite a lot of bioethics, and we're constantly worried about what is the authentic thing to do here. In our culture, we value human authenticity very highly, and quite often because it's tied together, sometimes erroneously, with autonomy. But when I do something authentic, when I write something authentic, that's because it actually encompasses much of who I am as a character, a lot of my experiences and so on. And good enhancement would, of course, tie together with a lot of who I am and would help me develop myself. And that is where experiences are useful because they contain information. If I take a smart drug, that's not many bits of information, it just puts my brain in a particular mode. Maybe I can learn things in that mode and maybe I can use it usefully. but it won't tell me how to play the piano. And if I download how to play the piano, yes, now I can technically do it, but I'm still not going to express very interesting things. So I think the enhancements that actually do not debase us, they are the ones that allow us to express this authenticity. And I'm rather optimistic that we can develop them. However, there might be forces, of course, in our society or even in our own laziness that make us say, yeah, I just downloaded how to play the piano, write a novel. That's good enough. I don't care to actually make it mine because that's so much hard work. That's like going to the gym. <laughs> and, of course, the real reason people go to the gym is social signalling anyway. <laughs> <laughs> actually, can I just follow up on that point? So yes,
3: um, I was thinking about your point about education and this idea of authenticity and kind of the presence of... The, the teacher and the student kind of interacting with one another. The dystopian aspect about all of this is the kind of neoliberal agenda by which um, higher education, amongst other forms of education, is becoming kind of massified. So we have these MOOCs, which many of you may have heard of, the massively open online courses, whereby you can get um, a university degree without attending the university. Uh, and it, and it, it sounds like a very democratic principle because you would be able to get a high quality degree from a different part of the world without having to go and live in an expensive city like London. But on the other hand, you you never get that, that human contact, that interaction that we still think is the foundational uh, experience of education. That you should be in the room with one of your lecturers, and you should be able to kind of spontaneously question and challenge and, and change the direction of, of the discussion. Uh, so yeah, capitalism is definitely pushing for more surplus value from these sort of online technologies.
1: Capitalism, boom!
3: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, Boo, <I'm> <laughs> yeah, the memory
1: thing. <laughs> I may have tipped my hand there a little bit. Oh, you know. On the other hand, <laughs> capitalism, yay! In their own minds, the memory thing is quite interesting because you're quite right. That hadn't occurred to me. People will say, "Oh, I've got a terrible memory," and they would never say, oh, "I'm really stupid." But I wonder if that's—I wonder how far back that goes. I wonder if that isn't a function, in fact, of exactly the phenomenon we're talking about. Because at the very heart of all these computational powers is the, 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 the Moore's law, meaning that memory is now so cheap that we can you know my phone can remember the entire culture of the world I don't need memory anymore Memory's become a kind of superfluous thing I don't need there's no there's no merit in saying I've got a great memory. That's like ridiculous.
3: But that that affective engagement that is required is that part that, of memory part of experience is, yeah. that you mentioned. And you
2: need to remember where to find it. You need to have a skill to be a kind of connoisseur of what kind of knowledge would be useful for me to look up on the phone. But like, no no one says they no
1: one says they lack that kind of memory because that's actually a function of wisdom, isn't it? And that's what we're boasting about.
2: But
3: plenty yeah. of people lack the strategic ability to find things. We can find anything on the internet, and yet many people don't, and yeah. they rely on other people to find information for
1: them in in the terms of the context of tertiary education it does sometimes seem to me that we are there's this inertia which means that we still set exams where students have to go into an exam hall with no aids uh, no help and remember stuff that they've laboriously crammed into their brains during revision which is a was a skill that was useful in the 1920s and in the 1950s but it's no longer useful because if you need to remember something If anyone needs to remember anything at all, I can find it on here. There's a thing called Google. And as long as we're not in China, then we're fine. But when it comes <laughs> back uh,
3: like to questions so of expertise so. in yeah, various sorry. different contexts, say you're in a, a business meeting and you're trying to pitch for a new client with a large company or something, if you sat there and they asked you a question and you started Googling something, it, or if I go to my doctor and ask what's wrong with me and then they go on their medical version of Google, I don't trust yeah, them. So we still privilege that kind of it, memory yeah. as, as, as um, suggesting a certain kind of expertise and qualification. So if well, let's take some
0: you, more audience questions. Yeah, I sorry, have yeah, to right cut right. this discussion short, although <laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, the gentleman in the middle who had the tea this <laughs> <Yeah. coughs> Let's take three again.
6: Well, I'm actually looking for a recommendation on sci-fi from you, because... Buy my books. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 quite, that's quite obvious. Yes. Uh, but what, what I find to be interesting, I don't see much works on sort of depth psychology subject. Everything changes, environment changes, but what doesn't seem to change is the self. The characters are still driven by very human needs, motives, everything else. Is there anything which actually tries to describe how does it feel to be a post-human? How does it feel, or how, how would actually the uploaded mind think? I mean, I can only recall uh, interactions with such mind. I mean, I can think of Salaris, of Strugatsky and so on. Mm. But generally, I don't see. You know, the, it's kind of pointless if the self does not mutate. Yeah,
1: and Hang on, we'll take two
6: more
0: questions. (laughs) Quite right. Okay. Yes, the lady just behind.
3: Um, Thank you. Such an interesting talk. Um, My question is kind of on the back of um, some of my own research. I just started my PhD on Arab sci-fi and I'm quite interested in the way that some of the Arab string revolutions are casually referred to as like Facebook revolution and Twitter revolution and maybe rails against some of the things we've been saying today about the poor capacity of technology to impart social change or to motivate social change. Um, at the same time, a lot of co- contemporary science fiction that I'm coming across doesn't seem to have found any room or any space for utopian or impro- utopian visions or visions of in- enhancement. So um, I suppose I just wanted to ask the panel's opinion on what forms might still be there to express that vision or to try and recapture that vision.
0: Okay, and third question Let's take the lady in the first row.
4: Hi, I think mine might lead on a little bit from the lady's question, actually. Um, with increased <coughs> cyborgization, if that's a word, um, at what point do we start losing, not necessarily our soul, but our humanity? Um, do we then become an artificial intelligence of sorts? And then on the flip side of that, do you envisage... Um, sort of during that transitional period um, abuse in terms of that person or that cyborg then losing their rights or gaining rights it's just that interesting okay in kind a of gray area
0: pretty fantastic
2: set of questions mm. <laughs> yeah uh, so literature recommendations so two that comes to mind uh, is uh, of course uh, Ted Chiang. His short story Understand is actually a quite interesting take Mm. on the radically intelligence enhanced protagonist. Uh, And I think that goes fairly far in describing somebody who is becoming uh, post humanly smart. And there is an interesting conflict which I don't want to give away too much about about the different visions uh, about the future of humanity going on there. But it's of course very hard to write well about about a super smart protagonist and also make him or her appealing. Another interesting novel in this regard is also, uh, Diaspora by Greg Egan. And this is where kind of the singularity was centuries ago. Most people, in a sense, are software. And this difference between somebody descended from uh, Homo sapiens or descended from uh, some artificial intelligence, well, that's been blurred a long time ago. It's only citizens. If you're conscious in the right way, then you're a citizen of an, uh, and that's the only thing that matters. Uh, I, I find it a very interesting, uh, and again, somewhat challenging novel. The interesting part about it, that actually ties into the second question, is uh, there is one character who eventually kind of ends up in a belief loop, uh, a, a, bit, a particular self-reinforcing belief. I think we would say, yeah, that's religion. Uh, but the point here is. Uh, It seems to be a dead end. You are now convinced that you write about certain things and you will never change. While another character in the novel continues indefinitely, although continues out into the space of mathematics. uh, From a human perspective, that sounds like a really lonely, isolated experience, except that to this character it's probably pure bliss and it's going to go on absolutely forever because mathematically uh, it can be proven to be unbounded. Uh, The problem is, of course, I would imagine that, yeah, making these characters appealing to a reader is not uh, entirely trivial. I think this is a general problem in all science fiction. You you might go down the stapled on an eagle path and make stuff that's intellectually rigorous or interesting, uh, but at some point the reader will say, yeah, I have very little uh, little feeling for that planetary supermind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, I, mean I suppose this
3: comes back to the way in which you understand character, because if you're going to take a, a kind of functionalist, structuralist approach to character, then character um, facilitates certain kinds of plot or certain kind of high concept ideas that you can um, uh, explore and develop in your fiction. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, the idea, it, it just brings us back to this problem of kind of liberal subjectivity, and the, I think perhaps the problem is the way in which we're reading, not the text that we're reading.
1: I concur, word? yes. Greg <laughs> uh, Higgins is a very interesting writer, but he's not a writer who's broken through in a big way because he very deliberately does not write likeable, appealing characters that the regular man and woman in the street can easily identify with. And that's what people want to read about. That's As I think it was Nietzsche who said, we have to hang the DJ because music that they constantly play says nothing to me about my life. So this is what people go to culture for. They want to have their... Their own circumstances reflected back to them in a way that's, you know, distracting and entertaining, and so on. Whereas what you're looking for is a science fiction that that revolutionises the way that we, you know, can think of ourselves as human beings. And that I think is beyond the mainstream.
0: Question about possibilities for a collective utopia. Second question.
2: Well, well, there is this problem as we've been touching on that uh, if you write about a utopia, it might become very boring or very hard to write about because the, the super intelligent utopia, that's probably going to be totally incomprehensible to us. The utopia where everything is working well, well, that's boring to write a novel about or you need to go to the outskirts like uh, the Iron Banks did with his culture novels where he's kind of looking at what happens to the neighbours of utopia, that, that, which kind of works pretty well actually as a setting and it's a shame that not more people have been trying that because it would be interesting to see what kind of utopias they would be having kind of uh, slightly outside the edge of a novel.
3: I, I forget who asked the question. Yeah, the lady up there. I mean, I would encourage you to perhaps go back and look. Um, there's a, a very good set of scholarship and texts around nineteen, sort of late 1960s, early 1970s critical utopias, and Tom Moylan writes excellently about this. So people like Sam Delaney, Joanna Russ, Marge Piercy, Ursula Le Guin, for example. And actually, um, and this is something that I've been doing in my own work, I'm kind of tracking these slightly scaled down utopian impulses in contemporary literature. I find them everywhere. I mean, you may choose to disagree with how I'm reading them. Um, but I think actually, if it, it's how we understand you Utopianism and the concept of utopia suffered drastically through the 20th century. Um, uh, there was a kind of liberal backlash against utopianism because it became associated with Nazism, fascism, Soviet communism, totalitarianism, which is, you know, by and large, an incorrect reading, <laughs> depending it, on how you want yeah. to trace the origins of utopia. Although um, I think
1: it still does shape the sense. In which it certainly does. People like think people think
3: who things. want to continue to defend utopia have to continue defending it, and every time you stand up and say I'm interested in utopianism, people sort of shout you down and say well, funny, it's boring, it? it's pointless they don't exist uh, and... there's an
1: annual conference no, called sorry. the Utopialis conference and I gave a, a I was about to give a talk there one year and I my chosen utopia was Teletubbies Seen <laughs> the Teletubbies? It seems to me the perfect utopian existence. Simply known... They simply no. Don't eat. Or do they eat? They do. They have tubby well, tusks. I
3: don't have, like, t- no, have a
1: machine that produces hair. this pink goo called tubby tusk. you know nothing of utopia
3: <laughs> 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 Ridiculous
0: idea. Cutting off the Teletubby discussion. At what point? At what point do <laughs> we cease to, to uh, be human? Okay, in all so of the relate dehumanisation? Uh, some of the, audience, the, some to
1: some the, the audience responded quite well to me arguing that the Teletubbies is the ultimate <laughs> yeah. postmodern utopia. Some of the audience were. Quite quite offended because Some they of the were religion. genuine utopians <laughs> 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 we're it's the thought right. of telly of Tusted. they want all, they've all to go off and um, <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 there's something that it seems to me there's a kind of infantilisation at the heart of this goes back to what the lady at the back was saying I think at the heart of many utopian visions what do we want you know we're into our 40s and we still want to listen to pop music and wear blue jeans and play video games and revert to a kind of infantile model of how we relate to to the universe, where all the anxieties of adulthood are taken away, and that seems very regressive and dangerous to me, although I am wearing jeans, and I listen to pop music and I do play, I should, li- don't ignore what I'm saying,
0: That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm On that speaking. note, <laughs> I think we can thank our panel <laughs>